we're all a little bit susceptible to that fallacy that we have perfect self-knowledge and that if you want to know what you care about or how to interpret what you care about, all you have to do is just think and that's it. And so I think that's a mistake. This is the Sustainable Ambition Podcast, the podcast that explores how to be ambitious and navigate work from decade to decade without sacrificing your life or yourself. And I'm your host, Kathy Onetto. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Valerie Tiberius. Valerie is the Paul W. Frenzel Chair in Liberal Arts and Professor of Philosophy at the University of Minnesota. Her work explores the ways in which philosophy and psychology both contribute to the study of well-being and virtue. She is the author of several books, including her most recent, What Do You Want Out of Life? A Philosophical Guide to Figuring Out What Matters, which we'll be discussing today. Valerie's book has influenced me a lot in terms of how I think about sustainable ambition, going after our goals, and navigating conflict around our goals. I'll admit, this is another conversation where I'm geeking out a bit, as I'm so inspired by Valerie's work and just loved this discussion. We talk about the pursuit of goals, why it's important to understand our values and get clear on what they mean for us, and how to reduce conflict around our goals. It's about exploring how we can craft our goals in a way to support our well-being and to navigate conflict, to reduce frustration, and in turn then increase fulfillment. Let's get to the conversation and learn more from Valerie Tiberius. Valerie, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Your book really spoke to me. And so I just wanted to thank you for your work. My book is underlined and dog-eared. It's really been instrumental on how I'm thinking about sustainable ambition. You know, the book is described as offering a short guide to living well by understanding better what we really value and what to do when our goals conflict. So that's what we're going to be delving into more today. And to start, you talk about in the book how We humans are goal-seeking beings. And, you know, you also say that it is important to fulfill goals. And I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about that, because I think sometimes people push against the concept of striving for things that they want. And so in this idea of like ambition and striving, you know, I know these terms are different, but I'm aligning that to goal pursuit and attainment. So I'm curious if you can speak a little bit more about like, why is it that we humans have goals and want to go after them. Okay. So, well, I'm going to be a philosopher for a second. Lots of philosophers have thought if you want to understand how to live a good life, you got to start with some kind of theory of human nature. For me, I tend to think, because I'm influenced by working with psychologists and reading a lot of psychology, I want to be very broad about human nature, very open-minded, because I think Um, human beings are quite malleable. And if you look at our evolutionary history and you look across different cultures, human beings are capable of all sorts of things. But the one thing we always do is pursue goals. And and I think this is true of any animal, Uh, whether you're a turtle or a dog or a dolphin or a person, um, you have goals and will pursue them. And I, I think that's different from the kind of striving that you're talking about. So striving sort of implies 
that you're pushing yourself and you're going to be upset if you fail. When I talk about goal being a goal seeker as, you know, human nature, I just mean you want things and you make plans to get them. That's the sort of very basic the extremely basic minimalist picture of human nature that I start with. And I don't think we can get away from that and still be alive. <laughs> <laughs> and I appreciate that. I think even just that bringing it down to that level for me is is actually really helpful. And I, I want to connect that then because in the book you write, we do well when we succeed in terms of what matters to us. And then you connect that to your theory that you've defined as the value fulfillment theory of well-being. And I know asking you, can you tell us a little bit more about that? It's like, well, that's the entire book to some degree. I mean, there's more in the book, but can you like introduce us to this theory a little bit? And why is it that you are defining success in, in this way, in the sense of when we do well around the things that matter to us? So I think that living well, achieving well-being, having a good life for yourself does consist in fulfilling our values and that that's based in this idea that we're that's that's a unavoidable part of our nature it's that we are these goal-seeking creatures. What I think is kind of crucial and important is that it's not just any old goals you happen to have that pursuing them will make you make your life good. Um, so we need to have goals of a certain kind. And those are these special goals, I call them values, our values. And those are goals that are suited to us psychologically. So they fit who we are as individuals, our individual nature. Um, and they're also goals that fit together well over time. So goals that we can, you know, that can carry us through life, and many of them will evolve, uh, but we'll be able to put them together in the same limited, limited lifespan that we have. That's the sort of nut, nutshell version of what, what well-being is on my view. If I were to connect the dots in terms of what you just said, it's kind of like, well, we are goal-seeking individuals. You know, you're defining our goals as these values. So almost like if you don't have them defined and clear, you don't know what you're going after. If we were to double click a little bit on those concepts of what are values and why is it so important for us to get a little bit more clear? And, and, and you write in the book, it's helpful to really get specific about them. I think in the abstract, one of the biggest obstacles to fulfilling your goals is conflict. Um they conflict with each other or they conflict your pursuit of them kind of conflicts with your circumstances or they conflict with you. So you have a goal, but you're kind of half committed to it. And so your head thinks it's great, but your heart doesn't or vice versa. All those kinds of conflicts, they produce frustration of one kind or another. And that's why I think it's so important to get a handle on what exactly are your most important goals, the values, and what exactly do they entail? Because I call that interpreting the values. So, you know, if you ask people what they value, everyone will say family. Maybe not absolutely a few psychopaths who won't say that maybe, but almost everybody includes family in their values. And work, almost all of us include work, meaningful work. But what does that mean? What does it mean to 
succeed in terms of those values. There's a lot of work to be done to clarify what it is exactly that you care about and, you know, not just what kind of work, what kind of family, um, big family, small family, children, no children, uh, all these kinds of questions that you have to answer about just what is it that I'm pursuing. And in that process, I think what you're trying to do is to interpret things in a way, to understand your values in a way that reduces conflict, reduces conflict with your own personality and reduces conflict between those values that, that you have. Does that, does that make sense? It does. And I, I really fell in love with this concept and what you brought forward around conflict. I don't think people recognize that that is what's happening. They just experience the frustration, like the concept of work-life balance. People just sit in the frustration and kind of, I, I kind of say it's like there's this work-life balance out there that's like this elusive thing that we're chasing after. And it's like this mirage in the desert that keeps disappearing and you can't quite ever get to it. And I think it's partly because we're dealing with this con conflict, but then we, we never actually deal with the conflict, actually. So we're experiencing the conflict, I say, and, and it's almost like we can never unpack it. And, and so I'm curious if people are experiencing some of this conflict, where might you point them first to start to unpack that or to reduce some of the conflict? If you already have a good sense of what's really important to you and you think you know what your values are um, and you realize that these things that are really important to you are conflicting with each other and it's making you miserable and frustrated, at that point, I think there's some strategies that are not really that attractive, depending on what the goals are. Sometimes you have to give something up. Sometimes your life is not long enough to fit all these, all these pieces together. Hopefully that doesn't happen to people too often, but that, you know, it does. Sometimes that is the answer. The strategy for dealing with conflict that I think is the most important one is the strategy of reinterpretation. And in a way, it's really a strategy of refining your values. And even as you get older, revising you, the way you thought about this value before might have made perfect sense when you were in your 30s, but when you're in your 40s or 50s, you might need to revisit it and redefine what it means to you. Um, so I call that the, the strategy of reinterpretation. And I think that's probably the most common approach that it makes sense to take with respect to these conflicts. Because typically when things like work and family or you know work and your athletic pursuits or your creative pursuits, when there's conflicts between these things, you, you can't give up your job and you can't get rid of your kids. You, so you have to do something else. And that's why I think this reinterpretation strategy is, is important. Are there certain ways that one reinterprets or is it kind of, is it just like a common approach? That's a great question. And it's, it's a really hard question. So mm. I, cause I think partly there's not, there aren't sort of general principles about how to reinterpret. So I'll, I'll say a few things. One thing is that I think it's important when you think about reinterpret, reinterpreting your, your goals to look for 
this fit with who you are as a person, just like you would if you were first trying to figure out what it is you value. You're looking for things that fit your your emotional dispositions, your desires, your sense of your judgments about what's good and what it makes sense to do. So you're looking for something that fits you psychologically, fits you as an individual. And I think you're doing that when you reinterpret your values too. And the most important thing in my perspective is to kind of acknowledge and be open to the fact that you don't know everything about yourself to begin with. I think we tend to think that, I, I mean, I find this in in young people, in my college students, you know, they, the ones who think they know what they want, they really think they know. And of course, from our perspective, we know that that's not, that's not the case with that age group. They have a lot to discover and a lot to learn. We're all a little bit susceptible to that, that fallacy that we're we have perfect self-knowledge and that if you want to know what you care about or how to interpret what you care about, all you have to do is just think and that's it. Uh, and so I think that's a mistake. I think we have to do some work to, to try to learn who we are emotionally, not just our talking brains, but also our, the other parts of ourselves. Yeah, so I'm getting a little maybe far afield from your original question, but those those are some of the things that the reinterpretation strategy involves. No, I love this because you're also bringing back a couple of the things that I really loved that you had in the book. One of the things you're bringing up for me in that response that I really appreciated was a little bit of like letting people off the hook a little bit in terms of feeling this like need to get things dialed down so clearly in some respects. Now, I know we said earlier, like, it, yeah, it's helpful to get clear on your values. But what I mean by that is um, I know some people and even working with clients, sometimes they can have some angst in figuring out values, say, or what their goals are. Or it's, you know, something that I experience often, too, is that some coaching clients might actually say like, is this normal that I'm, that things are shifting on me? And like, yes, this is normal. And I don't think we normalize that a lot for people out in the world. And so they're really shaken when things start to change on them. I even read in one of the articles I was reading on you, and you're a philosopher and you're doing this work and you've written a couple of books and you've done a lot of papers and you're like, I even found that I, I didn't have it all figured out. And I'll just say I also loved your analogy in the book around having a flashlight with limited reach and this idea that you can only see so far, right? And so I appreciated in all of this that you kind of were in my, these are my words, like not letting us off the hook, but like not, don't be so hard on ourselves. And I also love what you're pulling forward in terms of like, continually learn about yourself. But can you say any more about that? Because I'm also curious, like even for you in your 50s to be like, oh, yeah, I didn't know it all. What does that tell <laughs> us that we should be aware of as we move forward? So the quick thing to say is I think what it tells us is that life is a process and you don't get to the end of that process until you die. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the quick. But I'm, I, I'm so, I, it really warms my heart that you responded to that part of the book so positively because it was really, it, it was one of the things that motivated me to write it was the realization that 
you know, I really thought by this point I would have it all figured out and I would know what I'm doing and what I'm all about. And that would be, I would just be coasting. And maybe that's true for some people, but it certainly hasn't been true for me. And when I talk to people who are older than like my mother, I won't say her age, she wouldn't like that, but you can figure if I'm in my 50s, you know, she's up there. She has the same experience. It's not, you know, she doesn't feel like, oh yeah, I know what life is now. I just put it on autopilot. It's, I think it's just not how it works. And I think it's partly because, well, it's two things. Our environment changes and our bodies change and we change and then the other thing is that we're reflective, inquiring kinds of beings. So we just, we don't settle for something. We're always, at least those of us who are reading these books and listening to these podcasts and thinking about these things, where our minds just do that. You, can, you can't help it. And that means that there's no, there's no end point. So you mentioned the the flashlight analogy, but I do, I also make the analogy to life being like a garden where your values are your prized plants and, you know, you've got the soil and sun conditions and rain that you have to work with. There's nothing you can do about that, but you can, you can swap out some weeds for some better things and plant stuff that will actually grow and you can figure out which plants grow better together. Um, but of course, gardening, I have learned from people I know who garden, it's never done. They're never finished. They're always out there pulling things out, replacing them with new things. And so, yeah, so I think life is is like that. Yeah. And so just to like, I want to make sure it's clear to folks that it's kind of like, you know, as we change and our circumstances change, we age, as you're saying, it may be that either something has shifted for us and our priorities maybe around our values may have changed. For example, I've, I've always been athletic all my life, but I've also had injuries. And at this point, what staying active and vitality looks like for me in my 20s is very different for me now, but I'm still active and vitality is still a high value for me. So is that what like you and your mom have experienced too, is kind of like, I just, there's this need to reinterpret the values or that maybe even your values or prioritization may have shifted? Or is there anything else in that, Valerie, when you say life is a process? Well, I think you really absolutely got it. It's the relative priority of the things that you care about. And we're assuming there's nothing you can just or should get rid of. Like you, the, the things you have, <laughs> the things you care about are the right things, but you can change the relative priority of them. And that changes throughout time. You know, if you have young children, you're going to spend a lot more time being a parent than when your children are raising their own children. And then how you interpret success according to that value has to change. And I, I think the athleticism example is really a good one because you just, you know, it's one thing you learn. You just cannot do, physically cannot do what you did in your 20s when you're in your 40s or 50s. But that doesn't mean you have to give up valuing fitness. You just have to change what that means to you. You know, I have some friends who they think about fitness now not so much in terms of athleticism, but in terms of keeping their bodies 
functional for when they get older so that they're always able to walk up a flight of stairs and get out of a chair. And, you know, so they, they've shifted their thinking about what fitness means. And I think we need to do that with a lot of our values. So one of the things that you're bringing up is this point of the non-attractive giving something up, right? And I may be wrong here, Valerie, in terms of the counsel that I sometimes give people. I say, like, think about seasons or planning your life in arcs and with horizons. Like, you, we, our time is finite and we can't do everything at once is my belief. But what I often hear with some individuals that I work with is there can be angst when they need to step back from certain things. So even if they continue to work, you know, if they slow down their pace and society's markers don't help, right? It's kind of like the 40 under 40, the 30 under 30. It's like, get there fast, right? <laughs> I've talked about these different time dimensions we have to struggle with. There's the kind of carpe diem, like seize the day because time, you know, life can be short and yet life can also be long. So it's a challenging thing to kind of struggle with. But I'm curious if you have any suggestions or ways of, even from a philosophical perspective of, how do we allow ourselves some space to do, and I don't know if you would even put that into the camp of reinterpretation or how you think about it. if somebody does need to dial back or step back from certain things or put some things on pause, do you have any thoughts on like, how might they be able to do that in a way that doesn't cause quite as much disappointment or frustration? From my own work, what I would say is that actually having a coach or a therapist can really help here because um, one thing that I think helps us is changing our self-narrative. So when we're thinking about how our lives are going, we look at our values as these touchstones. And it's because of that, that changing your self-narrative is so helpful. Because if you're thinking to yourself, well, how's my life going? Well, I haven't been promoted yet. And that was my goal to get whatever I wanted to make this much money or get that promotion by the time I reached the age of X. If that's your narrative about what success is at work, it's going to be harder to scale back. But if you have sort of done some reflective work about what is it you actually care about in your work? What matters to you? And then your self-narrative is something different where it's something like, how am I doing in my job? Well, I have a great team and they rely on me and I'm dependable and um, my work is really high quality and I've been praised for that. That's a self-narrative that it's at least somewhat easier to kind of cope with a bit of scaling back if you're not, if your self narrative isn't all in terms of like hitting these external benchmarks, reaching these rungs on a ladder. But if the features of work that define success for you are things that you have more control over, um, I think that that's at least part of a strategy for making it making it more more possible to scale back a bit. And that's a point, you know, caring about things that are in your control. That's something that, you know, the stoic philosophers, they were big on that. All sorts of psychologists these days say say stuff like that. So that's that's kind of a common wisdom that we don't necessarily act on, but 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 it it's it has a lot of support. 
I think one of the things that sometimes people struggle with too is like having personal agency versus needing to operate within the structures of the world. Do I align to something that I don't have control over that's this external benchmark or do I align to something that's that's internal? And I'm I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Like how do people navigate between like what is personally valuable to them, but you know, we still have to operate within these structures out in the world. So there's making peace with things that are outside of your control, like the fact that our culture defines, tends to define success in terms of how much money you make or what your title is or something like that. And I'm not sure I have any particular advice about how to do that, except that your social circle has a tremendous effect. So if the unfortunate standard that that you sort of recognize something in the culture that you don't really like it, but there isn't anything you can do about it, like, like this career success is defined in terms of money, because it's coming from outside, it's coming from other people. If you can find your own other people who don't define it that way, that's going to be helpful, I think. The other question that is interesting to me is has to do with coming to peace, making peace with things that come from inside. So you might be the kind of person who just can't help thinking about success in terms of how much money you make. I mean, I know people like this who they really, really obsess about their salary and they really, really care. And that might be the kind of thing where no matter how much you recognize that it's not helpful for you and that it actually conflicts with your other values because it detracts from things like your own peace of mind and lack of stress and it does, your family doesn't like it because it makes you grumpy and competitive. No matter how much you recognize that, you might also just realize like, it's too deep in there. I can't get rid of it. And I think with that kind of thing that, you know, again, other people having other role models can be helpful. But I think at some point, we just have to laugh at ourselves and, you know, treat ourselves the way you you might have a friend who has an irritating character trait, and you're kind of like, oh, well, you know, they have that quirk, but I still love them. And you, you have to be like that to yourself also, I think. One thing that's really important to me as part of the work that I do is that I want it to be a judgment-free zone. <laughs> Navigating this world is hard as a human. It's not easy. And as you're saying, like it's not uncommon for us to experience these conflicts. And we're also all are, are navigating our way through and it changes over time. And so like you're saying, like, just f- accept yourself or forgive yourself or just don't be so hard on yourself. So some of us are going to be ex- more externally driven than internally driven. And I kind of accept that in my work. And some of my work is going to resonate with some people more than it's going to resonate with others. And I just, I don't want to make people wrong. I want to make, you know, like if this resonates with others and it fits with their values and I want it to to lie there. Yeah, it's really tricky because... Uh, you you do sort of want it to be a judgment-free zone and you want, you know, I don't want people to be hard on themselves. I don't want to be hard on myself. But at the same time, it's true that, you know, sometimes we don't give ourselves enough credit about how much we could change if we we Mm -hmm. tried. So there's a kind of tricky balancing act between 
accepting the things you can't change and the courage to change the things right, you can, right? Right. And this kind of goes back to the life as a as a process point it's, that that there isn't there's not a right answer. So there isn't a right answer and you have to be sort of accepting about the various things about the world and yourself you can't change. Um, but if you're the kind of person who's asking these questions about what would be better for me and how do I improve my life and how do I find values that work better for me? How do I define my goals in ways that will make my life more fulfilling? You have to be open to change to some extent. So it's that tricky, tricky pathway yes. that you have to find. In one of the articles I was reading that I think you were interviewed for something and you were pulling forward some books that you liked. And one that you noted was educated by Tara Westover. And you were saying like, sometimes we have to fight for our values. So sometimes the world isn't what we want it to be. And sometimes we have to fight for what we want it to be. Do you have any thoughts on that? So Tara Westover is somebody who um, wrote this memoir, Educated, which I highly recommend to anybody. I thought it was just the most fascinating um, story about a, a person who's raised with a set of values that don't fit her at all and that are actually quite unhealthy. And, and from I think most of us would agree. And she fights like hell to to go get a mainstream education and and become a PhD in history. And it's quite an amazing story. The thoughts that I have about this have to do with the different kinds of obstacles that we face. So some of the obstacles you face are not as worth fighting as others. You know, one example I've used before is uh, being diabetic. There are certain careers that I was never, not really open to me, like being an astronaut or, you know, probably certain kinds, there, there are probably certain other kinds of careers that, especially at my age when diabetes wasn't as well, there wasn't as good uh, technology to manage it then. But I wasn't going to like stand up on my soapbox for diabetic rights. It just kind of seemed like, well, I have a chronic illness it's okay. It's not worth fighting. And the the obstacles that I faced were just because of some thing about my, my body, not to do with prejudice or injustice. But some of the obstacles we face have to do with, you know, the world being crappy in ways that we want to improve. So people who face obstacles because of racism or sexism or other kinds of prejudice, prejudice against people with physical disabilities, uh, those are things that it makes sense to fight because you can, because fighting them can be a part of your value system. Whereas like I was never going to make anti-diabetes part of my value system, you know, it just, that just doesn't make sense. So that's one thought I've had about those, those kinds of obstacles that, that they, there are obstacles of, of different characters. And, you know, when, when there's an obstacle you face that you can 
subsume into your own value system and say, this obstacle, I'm, I am, I am against this and being against it is, is something I value. I think that that's a, a kind of, a, a good way of thinking about those sorts of obstacles. I think for someone like Westover, it was the fact that her, the obstacles were so severe and so much in conflict with her being able to live a good life. Just, she had to fight them. One of the things that you write about in the book, and I don't know if I was interpreting this correctly, but you talked about how dealing with conflict ends up shifting and being really about fulfillment. Like actually in dealing with the conflict, it's really about how am I fulfilling what I want in life and fulfilling my values. And that's a bit of what I'm hearing you describe in her kind of fighting for what she wanted. Maybe it was a conflict with her, you know, with the the family environment and the values she was growing up with, right? But in her fighting for that, it really was about fulfillment. Getting through almost that conflict allowed her to get to that fulfillment. And where I'm tying this to is this idea of like, you know, if you stay in conflict, it's really not a comfortable place to be. It's actually really is reducing your energy. It reduces resilience and it doesn't make things sustainable. Yeah. And that point you made that the stuff about reducing conflict is really about fulfillment. That's such an important point because the flip side of it is we probably can't live without any conflict at all. Uh, so, because it's one thing that people have said to me when I've presented my work to other philosophers, if they said, oh, well, you know, if you just want not to have conflict so you get more fulfillment, then just have one goal, just work <laughs> or, or, you know, just family and nothing else. But I don't think that doesn't work either because if you completely eliminate all of the obvious conflicts in that way, you end up with sort of deep human needs that are frustrated. You can't win by trying to just simplify things to such a degree that you only have one main goal. It doesn't, that doesn't sort of bring you the most fulfillment either. Um, so again, it's, you know, <laughs> we have this tricky middle path to, to find. Right. And that's kind of been a theme here as well. Well, I want to end with a little bit of a fun, perhaps, hopefully you don't mind me bringing this forward. But you in one of the articles I was reading about you, you said you that you loved this quote. And it's from um, a, a book called Happiness, a very short introduction by Daniel Habron. And the quote is, don't be an asshole in the pursuit of happiness. <laughs> so what do you love about that quote? Well, I think I like it because it's such common sense and it's put so simply. And honestly, philosophers don't always succeed in saying things that are common sense and so pithy. But I, I suppose I, I also, I mean, I like it because, you know, when you talk about goal fulfillment, people can tend to think it's all about me and it's a selfish pursuit. Um, and I think that's absolutely not the case because people are incredibly social and sympathetic um, beings. So pursuing our own goals connects us to other people. And I think Dan Habern's quote about not being an asshole in the pursuit of happiness kind of captures that that notion. That, yeah, you want your own, you want things for yourself, but 
that doesn't mean you you are you ought to be selfish or you should be selfish or you're allowed to be selfish. So I'm curious, what's your like favorite goal? And I'm going to use that and or value that you're focused on right now, because I, I would ask what's your next ambition, but I don't think that's the right word for you, Valerie. Like what's <laughs> what what value are you kind of focused on right now that's holding your attention? Oh, well, spending as much time as I can with my aging parents. That's very important to me right now. I'm developing a new course for the fall that's on values and happiness and value fulfillment. I'm super excited about that. And then when it comes to writing, I'm, I'm interested in writing something about the ways that artificial intelligence and robots are going to interact with our attempts to fulfill our values. We'll see. Wow, these all sound so interesting. I'm kind of like, ooh, can I audit a course? Um, and then, <laughs> you know, how AI fits into this. Wow, that's pretty interesting and very cool. Well, as you can tell, I'm a big fan of your work. I'm so glad I got introduced to it. Thank you for writing books for all of our consumption as well. And uh, since not all of us are reading your academic papers, but I'm just a final question is we've talked a lot today, but is there just a final takeaway that you'd love to leave my listeners with? I guess maybe a sort of a, a summary point would be, I, I would say you don't always know what you want. And what you do know that you want, it's not always what it's best to want. So I think you, we should try to figure out what really matters and then nurture that like a prized rose or a puppy. I love that. Uh, this has been great, Valerie. Thank you so much. If people want to learn more about the book, where should we point them? It's for sale wherever they sell books. Uh, but it's also, <laughs> there's lots of links on my website. Great. And we'll certainly capture those in the show notes. Valerie, thank you again for being on with me. I love this conversation. I love being able to speak with authors because there's just as beautiful as the words on the page are, there's always so much richness in conversation. So thank you again for being on with me. Well, thank you. Wonderful questions. I had a really good time. I loved learning from Valerie in this conversation, and I hope you did too. I appreciate how Valerie thinks about goals and how she ties them to personal fulfillment and well-being, that we can find well-being by going after goals that are tied to our values, that fit us as individuals, and that fit together well and fit well over time. I think what's important here is to get clear on what goals and values we really want, and then to be thoughtful about nurturing them, as Valerie shares in her parting wisdom. And also importantly, to embrace the fact that it is a process because we change and our environment changes. We are never done aligning our goals for our well-being. It's a practice. Then I appreciate that Valerie brings this forward, that when conflict arises, I think it's important to deal with that conflict so that we can get through it and actually unlock more fulfillment as opposed to staying frustrated by that conflict. And I appreciated how she brought forward the concept of reinterpretation to help us get past that conflict. How can we reconsider what our goals and our values mean to us in this moment so that we can define success for ourselves in a way that really resonates with us now? I also appreciated how she brought up how changing our self-narrative can help, that who we surround ourselves can matter, and then even 
giving ourselves a bit of a break and even making peace with certain parts of ourselves as well. So for me, I took away that it's important to invest time to identify what we value, to know what's important to us, to be aware of when we might be experiencing frustration due to conflict, and then to consider what strategies we want to deploy to relieve that conflict so we can increase our fulfillment. I'm curious what you took away. As you reflect on today's conversation, what spoke to you? And what's an insight that you might choose to put into action now? With that, thank you as always for being here with me to learn from Valerie Tiberius. I'll be back in your feed in a couple of weeks with a new story of sustainable ambition. And in the meantime, make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips, guides, and tools by signing up for Sustainable Ambition Forum, my twice monthly newsletter. You can sign up at sustainableambition.com slash subscribe. I look forward to seeing you next time. Take care.